We have two Bible readings this morning. The first one is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The second is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You can keep that. Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, it's uh, great to be together and to open up God's Word. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about goodness. Now, I remember a few occasions when I was growing up, my mum would have to try to convince me to do certain things that I didn't want to do. Maybe it was eating Brussels sprouts or... Uh, doing my homework, maybe it was taking a yucky vitamin, even having a shower sometimes. You know, young boys can be a little bit gross sometimes. Well, to convince me to do these things, my mum would say something that I'm sure you've heard at some point in your life. Come on, it's good for you. It's good for you. Now, the truth is, even even though these things were good for me, they didn't feel good or taste good at the time. In fact, if you ask me, Brussels sprouts still don't taste good today. Yuck. Unless they're maybe like covered in bacon, then then I can come at it. Now this, I think, highlights something about the way that we use the word good. The word good is probably one of the most commonly used words in the English language. We use it in so many different ways. We use it to describe our preferences, something we like or don't like. If we see a movie that we enjoy, we'll say it was a good movie. If we watch a game of footy that's exciting, we'll say it was a good game. We also use it to describe skills or competency. We'll say he's a good player or she's a a good singer. We use it to encourage or to praise someone. If a child does something particularly noteworthy, we'll say good girl or good boy. If someone does a job particularly well, we'll say good job. We even use it to warn or to threaten. So, for example, when I drop my almost three-year-old son off at my parents or at someone else's house, one of the last things that I'll say to him is, now, you be a good boy, okay? Sounds like a statement, but it's actually a warning. And then when I pick him up, one of the first things I'll say to him is, were you a good boy? Now, funnily enough, the answer to that question is almost always, yes. We use the word good in so many different ways, which is fine when it comes to the smaller matters of life, but what about the bigger issues of life? 
What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to live a good life? These are important questions, and these are questions that we want answers to. According to an article in USA Today, there was a a poll done in 2018 that found the most popular New Year's resolution that year was to be a better person, which was the number one resolution the year before as well. Now, the thing is, I'm sure if you ask those people who were polled, what does it mean, what does it look like for you to be a better person? I'm sure you'd probably get all kinds of different answers. In fact, the Huffington Post uh, surveyed some people on Facebook and Twitter. They asked them the question, what makes someone a good person? They got all kinds of answers. Someone said the ability to let everyone believe as they choose without judgment which is a very postmodern relativistic answer. Another person said, simply put, a good person knows the earth does not revolve around them alone. Someone else said, having good manners toward everyone. And someone else said, giving up the last piece of cheesecake. How would you answer the question? What makes someone a good person? We're in the middle of a sermon series at the moment where we're looking at what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Because when we place our faith in Jesus, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out, begins to reproduce in us the character of God, begins to beautify our lives slowly but surely. So far, we've seen that the Spirit of God produces in us the fruit of love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, and today we come to goodness. So the question is, what is goodness? Now, there are all kinds of answers out there, as we've seen, but what does the the Bible mean when it talks about goodness? Well, the Greek word for goodness in Galatians 5, which we read a moment ago, it's also translated sometimes as generosity. And this is because it's something of a difficult word to translate. It's a rich word. It's the word agasthune. It's from with that word that we get the name Agatha. So if you're named Agatha, the root meaning of your name is good. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Now, when it's used in Galatians 5, this word expresses the excellence of something. And specifically, it refers to moral excellence. It's something or someone that is upright, honourable and noble. It means to be a person of integrity. It means to do good to others. It includes generosity and kindness and sacrifice. And all of this means, when we put it all together, is I think we would agree with what a, a pastor, a scholar by the name of George Bethune observes. Now, Bruce, I've left the clicker in my bag down there, so you might just be able to click to the slide for me. This is what George observes. He says, the best practical definition of goodness is given in the life and character of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good, Acts 10, verse 38. So far as we resemble Jesus, especially in his devotion to the welfare of others, do we possess the grace of goodness. 
In other words, to put it simply, uh, to pursue goodness is to pursue Christ-likeness. To be good is to become more and more like Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, okay, just become like Jesus. Got it. No worries. Piece of cake. I mean, if we're honest, this call to goodness, though it is appealing, though we want to live more and more like Jesus, it can also feel a little bit unrealistic. It can also feel a little bit like a crushing burden. Thank you, Porky. I mean, it can kind of feel like we'll never be good enough. Or we can't be good. It was C.S. Lewis who said, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. I wonder if you can relate to that. I know that I can. And according to the Bible, there's a very good reason for this. The Bible puts it very bluntly in in Romans chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul quotes from some Old Testament passages to describe the universal condition of humanity. This is what he says. He says, as it is written in the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, this is the Bible's very honest diagnosis of the human condition. We are not, by nature, good. We are not inherently good. Now, we are created in the image of God, which means we have inherent value and dignity and worth. But we have been cut off from relationship with God, the God who is the source and the standard of goodness, which means in and of ourselves, we cannot know or do good. Now, that's not a very chipper diagnosis, is it? And it's not a very popular diagnosis. We prefer to talk about human potential rather than human depravity. But the reality is, unless we reckon with our true problem, we will not know the way to our true solution. We will not find the path to true and lasting goodness. And the path to true and lasting goodness, it begins with the acknowledgement that you and I are not inherently Good. Now, this is ironic because most people believe that Christianity begins with the resolve, the decision to be good, to do good. I'm going to sort my life out. I'm going to begin to behave. I'm going to begin to do good. Now, most people think that that's what Christianity is and what it means. But Christianity actually begins with the admission that you are not good. It doesn't begin with your hands full of your good deeds that you offer to God. It begins with your empty hands. It does not begin with your bank account full of your own righteousness. It begins with bankruptcy. I've said it to you this way before. The only thing you need to receive the grace of God is need. Because when you come to Christ with empty hands, with an empty bank account, he fills it with his merit, with his righteousness. It's not about your goodness and what you've done. It's about God's goodness to you. This is what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul said, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
not by works, so that no one can boast. We are brought into relationship with God, not because of our goodness, but because of God's grace and goodness to us in Christ. And when we begin to truly comprehend this truth, when we begin to understand this amazing reality that we are saved simply and purely by the grace of God, we begin to see and marvel at the goodness of God. We begin to rejoice in the goodness of God. Now the Bible tells us from cover to cover about the goodness of God. In fact, the very first chapter of the Bible, the word good appears seven times. God creates the universe and everything in it, and each time he declares his creation to be good. And at the very end of that chapter, we read, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. See, according to the Bible, the created world is a very good gift from a very good God. I mean, God could have simply made this world functional, clinical, just everything could work as it is, but he didn't do that. He also made it beautiful. He made us with the ability to see the sunset over the ocean, with the ability to feel the softness of, of lamb's wool or, or, or grass under our feet. He made us with the ability to taste the flavour of pineapple or single malt whiskey, to hear the brilliance of Bob Dylan or Mozart, to smell a flower or freshly baked bread. Jen Wilkin is an author and she says it this way, God could have created a much duller creation and much duller creatures to fill it. But in his goodness, he formed and filled it with colour, noise and bounty. Anyone who was halted at a sunrise, stilled at the calling of a bird, wept at a harmony, rolled a raspberry across the tongue, reveled in dew-laden grass underfoot, or marveled at the symmetry of a spider web, knows that goodness lies scattered around us. We are fairly tripping over it at every turn. The created world is a very good gift from a very good God. Now you might be thinking, yeah, Adam, I agree with that. Much in this world is very, very good, but much in this world is not good as well. I mean, we enjoy all of these wonderful gifts from God, but we also endure lots of things that are painful and hard and difficult. Now, the Bible would agree with you. The Bible is not naive about this reality. In fact, Romans 8.21 says that creation itself is in bondage to corruption. Because like us, it is under the curse of sin. But the Bible also tells us that it will not always be this way. The rest of verse 21 says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, can you imagine this world as it will be when it's set free from its bondage? I mean, this world right now is about as bad as it's ever going to be. And it's going to get a whole lot better. Because God is at work in this world for our good and God will one day renew this world once and for all. And we can know this to be true because God has even sent his son into the world. I mean, this is the ultimate display of God's goodness. 
the sending of Jesus Christ from heaven to earth for you and for me. Do you remember what the angel said to the shepherds on the night when Jesus was born? Do not be afraid, they said. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The coming of Jesus was an explosion of goodness and good news in our world. Because the good God had come to rescue and redeem his broken and lost people. This is why Titus 3 says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now it reminds me of the song that we sang just a moment ago, the mighty, Oh the Mighty Hand. Praise to God for the world he made for the son he gave, for the price he paid. See, as we come to Jesus, as we receive the Spirit of God, we begin to recognize and revel in the goodness of God. And we look forward to the future that God has promised to those who love him. And all of this means that we as people begin to grow in the grace and the fruit of goodness. This is exactly, actually, what Ephesians 2 said to us. Verses 8 and 9 said that we are saved by God's grace. But then the very next verse said this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this is always the order in the Christian life. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. We're not saved by our goodness, but we are saved for goodness, so that we might grow in goodness. Now the question is, well, what does this mean? What does this look like for you and me practically, Monday to Saturday? How do we grow in the fruit of goodness? Well, the ESV, which is an um, English Standard Version translation of the Bible, it puts verse 10 a little bit more literally. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the word walk implies our ordinary, everyday lives. That is where we are to pursue and practice goodness. Not just in the extraordinary, heroic moments of life. I mean, if you rescue someone from a burning building, that is a good thing to do. If you help someone on the side of the road change their tire, that's a good deed. But when the Bible talks about goodness, it means as we go about our ordinary, everyday lives. As we walk through life, we are to pursue goodness. So to help us understand what that means, I just want to talk about some of the big, main areas of our lives and how we can pursue goodness. The first example where we are called to pursue goodness is we are called to do good at home. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, they're strong words because it's an important truth. Our pursuit of goodness begins at home. If you're always out doing good for others, but neglecting the needs of your partner, your parents, your kids, you're not practicing goodness. Goodness begins at home. I heard about a course on biblical marriage this week where one of the lessons is titled, Who Takes Out the Garbage? Now, it's 
humorous and it's designed to catch our attention, but the author is onto something. Household duties, household chores are often a sore point in homes. But for the Christian who is pursuing goodness, they are an opportunity for us to do good to those we love the most. So where is God calling you to do good at home? What opportunity has he laid before you? Now, the really important thing is to not see these things as interruptions or inconveniences, but to see them as opportunities to do the good works that God has prepared for us to do. We are called to do good at home. Secondly, we are called to do good at work. Now, how do you view your work? Is it just kind of a necessary evil for you to have to, to pay the bills? Is it a way to get rich so that you can stop working? God has placed great dignity upon our work. It's a way for us to glorify God and to meet the needs of other people wherever God has placed us. It might be in the office, it might be on a work site, it might be at school, it might be in a hospital, it might be raising children at home. God has placed us there to do good. So where has God placed you and how can you do good at work? It might be having a spiritual conversation with someone. It might mean that you strive to be the best employee or the best employer that you can be. No cheating, no stealing, no slacking off, no ripping other people off. It might also be through your example in the workplace, the way you talk to others, the way you talk about others, the way you treat others. I read a story this week about, well, I heard a story this week about a man who served in the British Navy. Now, he had gone into the Navy a, a resolute atheist. He had nothing but contempt for all forms of religion and he wanted nothing to do with it. But as it happened, he was posted on a small ship with only a few other men on the crew. And he would interact with these men every day, he would eat with them, he would work alongside them, he couldn't escape them. And one of these other men on the crew was a committed Christian. And according to this man, this Christian did not preach at him, did not quote the Bible at him. He simply lived a life of goodness in front of his eyes. And as the days turned into weeks and the weeks into months, this man who was an atheist, he saw something in his fellow crew member that he hadn't really seen before, that he couldn't account for. It was a kind of life that he hadn't seen before. And he says in his testimony, I would have never opened a Bible but I could not help reading the life of this man. Eventually, his life convinced me that there must be a God. And this man left the British Navy a follower of Jesus, which is similar to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, live such good lives among the pagans, those who do not believe, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, there might be people at your work who would never open a Bible right now, but they can read the pages of your life. And so what is it telling them about Jesus? Every time we go to work or school or uni, we have an opportunity to do good. As we walk through our daily lives, we are to do good at home, we are to do good at work, and thirdly, we are called by God to do good in the church. A little later in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And we'll talk about that in a moment. 
But he says, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, according to this verse, we are to belong to the family of believers. Not just going to float around on the edges, not just uh, attend services, but to be actively involved in the life of the church. And we are to do that so that we can be a force for good. So that we can look for opportunities to do good, to give, to serve, to encourage others. So let me just ask you, what's your attitude towards the church? Do you come along on a Sunday just hoping that you'll like the songs, the sermon won't be too boring, apologies, and that the service won't go for too long? Or do you come with eyes open and hearts ready to worship God? Do you look for opportunities to do good to others? It might just be a kind word. It might just be something small. But God has called us to do good to one another, especially. You know, I'm blessed to be able to see a lot of what goes on behind the scenes in our church family. And I'm so thankful for the, the many, many ways in which so many of you do good to others, serve others, give for others, build others up. The Apostle Paul said about the church in Rome, he said, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. This is in the same letter that he wrote Romans 3 about the universal condition of humanity. Because in Christ, we can now begin to pursue goodness. As we walk through our ordinary everyday lives, we are called to do good at home, at work, in the church, and finally, do good to everyone. That's what the Apostle Paul said in in Galatians 6 verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Now maybe you're a little bit like me and you think, that sounds tiring just reading that verse. Now obviously it doesn't mean that we have to do good to every single person alive in the world today. What it means is that wherever we go and whoever we meet, we are called by God to do good. We are called by God to say, Lord, what would you have me do in this conversation, in this setting? What good do you have for me? And then do it. Now, if you do get a little bit tired just reading that verse, if all of this sounds a little bit hard to you, then let me offer you the encouragement of Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Where Paul also writes to us and he says, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So if you've grown a little tired, if you've become tempted to to give up, the encouragement from God's word is to look to Jesus, to look to the future that he has promised you, to turn your eyes on him who has done so much good to you, so that you might do good to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been exceedingly, abundantly good to us. This created world is a very good gift from a very good God. And above all, the gift of your Son, 
who lived the life we have not lived and who died the death we deserve to die so that in him we might be made righteous. We might pursue goodness for your glory and for the good of others. So Lord, help us to do that. Where we have grown weary and tired, please encourage us by your spirit. Please motivate us and move us to keep on pursuing goodness. As we walk through our daily lives, help us to have our eyes open for the opportunities that you have placed before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond now by coming to the table for Lord's Supper. And Lord's Supper is really a visible reminder of God's goodness to us in Christ. It reminds us of what God has done for us. The bread that we'll take in a moment represents the body of the Lord Jesus. And the cup represents his spilt blood poured out for you and for me so that we might stand before God loved, forgiven and accepted. It also reminds us of our call to do good to one another. This is why we eat and drink together, because together we are the people of God, called by God to pursue goodness. Now to help us reflect on God's goodness to us and on our responsibility to do good to one another, I'd like to read something for us from the Heidelberg Catechism. Now the Heidelberg Catechism is simply a a series of questions and answers that really summarize the, the truth of the Christian faith. I'd like to read question one and two. They'll be on the screen as you read along, as you, f- you follow along. Question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Question two, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. God has been exceedingly good to us in Christ. And the answer to that second question, it defines for us who may come to the table. It's those who are truly sorry for their sin. It's those who who recognize what God has done to pay the price for our sin in Christ. And it's those who are truly thankful to God for all that he's done. And so if that's you, then I invite you to come in just a moment to take the bread, to take the wine, to go back to your seat and we'll eat and drink together. Let me invite those who will be serving us this morning to come forward and to get into position. And as you come, we'll be singing the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. If you've lost sight of God's goodness to you, if you've become weary in doing good to others, then you take these next few moments to remind yourself of God's goodness to you in Christ. And then you come and you receive those elements, you go back to your seat and we'll eat and drink together. The ushers will invite you from the back to the front. Come church, all things are ready.
Oh, <laughs> 